Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. So this morning, we continue in our series called The Name, looking at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Uh, Now, in the South Pacific, there is a cluster of very small islands, and one of these islands that makes up this cluster of islands is called Tana. And Tana is unique for two reasons. The first reason is that it has one of the most um, active and accessible volcanoes in all of the world. So you can actually climb up in this volcano and look down and see the lava and everything there. So it's, there's a lot of tourism there because of that. So that's one of the reasons that it's unique. But the second reason that it's unique is that it has one of the most obscure and kind of weird villages on the planet. Now, in this region of the world, in the 1930s and the 1940s, the U.S. had a military presence in the South Pacific because of the war that was happening there. And there's this village there where this, this sailor, this man in the U.S. Navy, uh, he kind of stumbled upon this village, this village that had not been really touched by the outside world at all. So as he was stationed in Tana in that South Pacific region of the ocean, this U.S. sailor gets off of a ship, goes onto this island, stumbles onto this village, and he's the first white man that these people on Tana had ever seen. And to them, he had all of this incredible, very modern technology, and so they thought that the natural response to this man would be to worship him because they saw him as a god. So they asked this man, who are you? And he said, my name is John from America. This village changed its name to John from, F-R-U-M, because they thought that's what he said. And he said, my name is John from America. And they actually said, that our new name of our village will be John from, because you are a God and we worshiped you. And so they said, we're going to worship you. And John from said, okay. And so for a few days, he stood there and he hung around and he was worshiped by these people. But he had to get back to his ship and he had to leave. And so he promised these people, he said, hey, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to come back. And when I come back from America, I'm going to come back bringing gifts for you. Since the 1940s, these people have been waiting for John Frum to return from America. If you go there today, I think you can see some pictures here. They worship John Frum. They have the American flag because to them they believe that America is heaven, and so they sing songs of praise to America. You can go to the next slide here. This is actually one of their shrines to John from. This is the megaphone that he had when he came, this modern marvel of technology that he had with him. This is their shrine. So they would sing songs to John. They would sing songs to America. They actually, at some point, uh, accessed some Beach Boy records, and they actually sing Beach Boy songs in their worship service uh, to John from. So imagine walking through a South Pacific island and hearing like a Good Vibrations or Barbara Ann. It'd be pretty, pretty wild, pretty weird. Weird. But when you think about it, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking because they've been waiting on this guy to return since the 1940s. And they've developed this theology that one day John Frum is going to come back with his friend John the Baptist. And he's going to bring with him 50,000 soldiers up out of the volcano. And this small village is going to take over the world because of this relationship that they have with this man named John Frum. Kind of at the heart of this story is the idea that what we believe about God matters. 
what we believe about God changes the way that we view the world and it changes the way that we live. So if you think of God as a sailor from the 1940s, that's obviously going to change how you live. If you think of God in a deistic sense and you think that God is distant and unknowable, that's going to change how you live. So if God is distant and he's unknowable, then what's the purpose in pursuing knowledge about him at all? Because he's always going to be far away. But if you see God the way that Scripture says that God is, that's going to change the way that you live and that you see the world. So that's why we're in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, because this is ground zero for a theology of God. This is God's self-revelation of who he is to Moses. Moses is with the Israelites in the wilderness, and they've kind of rebelled and become wicked and turned their hearts toward idols, and he's coming to this God, and he says, you know, I want to know who you are. I want to know what your like. And he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory because you won't live, but I'll do you one better. I'll tell you my name. I'll tell you what I'm like. And that's what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is about. So God comes to Moses and he says that I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what we're going to look at today. This word steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word hesed. Everyone say hesed. The word for faithfulness is emet. Everyone say emet. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these two words apart and then we're going to bring them back together. And I think in doing that, it will maybe open up this text in scripture in profound and beautiful ways. Uh, the word said is the word for steadfast love, and it's one of the most important thoughts or concepts in all of uh, Jewish uh, scripture and the Jewish world uh, to this day and in Jewish history. One uh, ancient Jewish rabbi said this. I think you can see it here on the screen. The whole foundation of the world is built upon three things, Torah, Avodah, and said. So for the ancient Jewish world, they said the world is built on three things, Torah, the, the word of God, Avodah, the worship of God, and Hesed, the love of God, the steadfast love of God. This word Hesed is found in the Old Testament 250 times. And it's interesting that to notice in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that it's the only word that's repeated. We see it here, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and we see it again in the next verse where he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, the ancient writers, when they wrote the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't have bold font or italic font. And so what they would do, if you really wanted to emphasize a point, what you would do is you would repeat it. So they repeat this word for emphasis. They're saying that this is crucial. This is really important to understand about God. This is one of the central tenets of his character. So Yahweh here speaks to his love twice, meaning this is one of the most important and most true things about who he is. He's abounding in steadfast love. His steadfast love is spilling over way past capacity for us in Hesed. So if this is so essential, if this is so fundamental, what does it mean? Now, if we're reading in the ESV today, and the ESV translates it as steadfast love, but if you have the NIV, it's just translated as love. If you have the New King James, it's translated as goodness. The NASB, it's translated as loving kindness. So what does it mean? Is it love? Is it goodness? Is it loving kindness? Is it steadfast love? And this has been debated for a long time. And I think that the short answer to this question 
is yes. It's all of those things. That this word is so deep and so rich and so profound that you can't just capture it in our English word of love. It is, it is all of those things. Um, Daniel Block, who is a Hebrew scholar, said this, the Hebrew has said cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term. Kind of file that phrase covenant term away in your mental doc. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Wrapping up in itself all, all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. It's a covenant term that goes beyond the requirements of duty. He's saying here that you can't just limit hased to the word love or even steadfast love, that it's all the positive attributes of God's love toward us that go beyond the requirements of duty. What does that mean? Goes beyond the requirements of duty. Well, in Hebrew scripture, the word hased is given by God, is given by God to us with nothing expected in return. Often hased is extended to someone who doesn't deserve this kind of love, that maybe has been disobedient or not loyal to the person who is giving it to them. It's given to someone who doesn't deserve it and someone often who hasn't done anything to earn it, anything to earn it, and they can't repay it. In Hesed, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, in that word, we begin to get hints of grace that will ultimately be expressed in a full sense in the person of Jesus Christ. So Hesed is love, it's steadfast love, it's goodness, it's kindness, it's loving kindness, all of the positive attributes of God's love that he expresses toward us. Now, emet is the other word that's translated as faithfulness. It can also be translated as truth or as trustworthy. It's uh, one of the words that gives us our English word, amen, emet, amen. Now, when I was home over Christmas, I spoke in a Southern Baptist church, my parents' church, and in this church, they use a word very often, and that word is amen. I can get up and say, hi, my name is John. I'm from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And they say, amen. It's just part of what they do. Now, I'm, I'm learning in the Midwest culture, it's more of like the mid Midwest kind of nod or the, the eyebrow twitch or there'd be like a smite, slight smirk. So let's try maybe practicing, maybe hard, take a deep breath. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a conversation here, okay? Does that sound good? We're going to say amen together. So I'm just going to say something and feel free to express back to me how you feel about that thing. Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious. Amen. He's slow to anger. Amen. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Amen. So that means that what you have said or what the word has said is true. That's where we get our word amen, just saying, yeah, what you've just said is true. So amen. Um, it's also interesting to note that in the Hebrew text, there's no, there are no vowels. And the word emet is made up of three consonants, and it's aleph, mem, and tav. Aleph, mem, and tav. The e there that we have is a vowel pointing that's not found in the, in the text there, but it's just three letters, aleph, mem, and tav. Why is this important? Well, aleph is the first letter of the Jewish alphabet. Tav is the last letter of the Jewish alphabet. And mem is the, is the middle, the exact middle letter of the Jewish alphabet. And Hebrew scholars have said that this shows us a little bit about the character of God and God's faithfulness for us. It's a picture of God's faithfulness from beginning to end. 
Aleph, Mem, Tav, that God is faithful from the start, he's faithful in the middle, and that God is faithful to us in the end. Kind of a beautiful little picture of God and his word. So what does this look like practically for us today? Exodus 34, God links his hesed, his steadfast love, with his emet. These words are placed side by side for a reason. Now, if there are any literature nerds here, they're going to recognize this word. It's uh, hendiades. You ever heard that word, hendiades? It's when you put two words together because they can't stand apart on their own. These two words are not exclusive, but that they complement one another. Essentially, that one word is simply the extension of another word. So God in Exodus 34 and 6 and 7 is saying that my love, that I am love, my name is love, and as proof of that love, as as an extension of that love, I am faithful. So understanding the text, what God is saying here is that his love, his hesed, is his faithfulness, his emet. He's also saying that his faithfulness is his love, that these words are linked together and that they cannot be separated because they complement one another. So when we look at Exodus 34, we see that our simple English translation of the word love is is kind of deficient. As some of my friends would say, it's kind of weak sauce. We need to understand a little bit more than what we see here in the text. And so we see this pairing of this word, hesed and emet, 126 times in the Old Testament. Let's take a look at a few of those. Psalm 89 here, the writer says, I will sing of the steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness, your emet, to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. And then the psalmist here breaks into a prophecy about the coming Messiah for the nation of Israel in the next, uh, in verse 28. He says, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, for, for my Messiah, for my son, Jesus, who we will ultimately discover in the New Testament. And my covenant will stand firm for him, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So here, excuse me, here's an example of these words being linked together to describe God's love for his nation, Israel, for his people, and then also his love for the coming Messiah. But this kind of leaves us with lots of questions to ask and wrestle with. If God is love, if God is faithful, if God truly has said and he met for me, then why did I end up in this broken marriage? Why have I maybe been left with this debilitating illness? Why have I experienced a miscarriage or not been able to get pregnant at all? Why are we born into a world with systemic racism Why is my dream job turned into a nightmare if God is faithful and God is loving? It's kind of hard to reconcile that faithfulness and that loving kindness toward us in the current situation in which I find myself in. So let's kind of work through this together to understand how God's love and his faithfulness can kind of sit outside of and also at the same time in the midst of our situation, no matter how good and how bad. Has said in a met express God's loyalty to us as his people, how he never abandons his people, but that he is with them through thick and thin to the very bitter end, no matter the cost, that God is loyal to 
his people, meaning that we can't understand Hesed and Emet without understanding the covenant language of the Bible. And to understand the covenant language of the Bible, we basically need to understand the overall story of the Bible. So let's do that right now. It's going to only take a few minutes, I promise. But we're going to look at the scripture from beginning to end to really understand what is Hesed, what is Emet, and what, as Daniel Block said in our quote earlier, is this covenant promise, this covenant language that God wants for us to understand. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, the word covenant was a combination of three elements, three elements. Promise plus a legal contract plus a relationship. That's what a covenant is. It's more than a, than a promise. Often you'll hear people explain that a covenant is simply a promise. It's more than a promise. There's also kind of this contractual uh, relationship in that, and then also a personal relationship. So maybe in our world and our life, the best way to understand that or the best example for that would be a marriage. When you get married, you're making a promise to your spouse to be faithful to them throughout your entire life. There's actually a legal binding contract uh, that can have some repercussions if you don't um, obey that and you decide to break that contract. And then at the heart of that is a relationship. This is what a covenant looks like. This is when we speak about covenant relationship or covenant marriage. That's, at, well, that's what, what's at the heart of that. And this is at the heart of God's love, his said, his amet for us. So we see this covenant from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And the kind of the pivotal point that kicks everything off is in Genesis chapter 12. It's the fulcrum point for this covenant in the entire Old Testament. God shows up to this Bedouin named Abram and he says this, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the I will language throughout this text. God is saying, this is what I am going to do. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. He promises Abraham that he's going to bless him. And then through his family, they're going to bless the nations. And ultimately, they're going to bless the world. So this is how God works. Next slide here. God blesses the people of God so that the people of God can bless the world. And this is at the heart of the covenant that God establishes with Abram. He doesn't promise Abram here a carefree and easy life. If you know the story of Abram, you know that he went through many trials, many hardships and heartaches. He doesn't promise him a carefree and easy life. But at the guts, in the guts of this promise is that Abram's family in the good and in the bad, they're going to serve as a conduit for God's blessing to the world. Now, years pass in Abram and Sarai, his wife's uh, life. God changes their name from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And years pass, and they get older, and they actually get past the age of being able to actually bear children. So we begin to wonder, is God unfaithful? Is God breaking this covenant that he promised to Abram, when we see this weird and bizarre story in Genesis chapter 15. So Abram, Abraham is growing frustrated with God because God has not seemingly not kept his covenant, his promise with him. And so God tells Abram and Abraham in Genesis 15 to take some animals, to take, I think it was a, um, a bull, a goat, a ram, and some birds, and to cut them in half and to lay them in parallel paths. And what this was known as in the ancient world, when you would take animals, you would cut them in half, you would lay them in a parallel path, one beside the other. This was called cutting the covenant. 
So if you're making a covenant with someone, maybe over land, maybe over belongings, maybe over your flock of sheep, or even some people giving their daughter in marriage to someone else, you would do this cutting the covenant ceremony. And what you would do is that person that you were making the covenant, the promise with, you would walk arm in arm through the middle of these animals that have been cut in half, basically saying that if I break my covenant, my promise with you, may this be done to me. And so Abraham is thinking here, okay, God's going to have me cut these animals, lay this path. We're going to walk through together, and God's going to reaffirm his covenant with me, and then I will affirm my covenant and my faithfulness to Yahweh, to God. But then something happens. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and Abraham envisions God in this dream walking through this path, down this path between these cut animals, all by himself. Why is this important? This is significant because God is telling Abraham that this covenant has nothing to do with you. It's all about my said. It's all about my emet. Abraham, whether you are faithful, whether you dishonor me, whether you disobey, I, as Yahweh God, am faithful. I am said. I have steadfast love for you and your family, regardless of circumstance, regardless if you're faithful, regardless if you have done anything to earn it. So God is reaffirming his covenant with Abraham in this chapter, in Genesis chapter 15. Generations later, Israel <clears throat> finds itself in exile in Babylon. Nehemiah and a small band of Hebrews find their way back to Jerusalem, and they're still waiting on this promise, this covenant promise from God, but look what Nehemiah writes as he is waiting, as God's people are in exile in this pagan land. Nehemiah writes this in Nehemiah 9:17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Do you hear the echoes of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 here in this text? He goes on to write this. In verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us and all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. So in a very dark time in Israel's history, Nehemiah here is echoing back to God the words found in Exodus 34, saying that you are a God who keeps this covenant. You are a God that keeps and maintains steadfast love toward us, that he sees God's covenant promise in their exile. He says, God, you love us, and you're willing to discipline us, even if it means that it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time for us, a difficult season, that, that his love, his faithfulness, is expressed often through his discipline and for the nation of Israel, this was in, a, in exile in Babylon. So for Nehemiah, for the ancient Israelites, um, they never saw God's covenant promise come to fruition. We had to wait on the arrival of Jesus for that to happen. Now, scholars for millennia have been wrestling with this Jesus of Nazareth character, this guy that was a divinity and humanity in coexistence. Um, as we said the first week, that Jesus was Yahweh, that Jesus is Yahweh in flesh and blood, that he is man and God overlapping. So we know that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine, that as we explored in the first week of this series, that Jesus is 
Yahweh, that Yahweh is not just the Old Testament understanding or the New Testament understanding of God the Father, but knowing that Jesus was the embodiment of Yahweh on earth, as the Apostle Paul wrote. But Jesus is also Israel in flesh and blood. Jesus is Yahweh and Jesus is Israel because Jesus was the long-awaited king that the nation of Israel had been waiting on. He was the representative of God, of Yahweh, drawing the story, the covenant, onto his shoulders. Jesus came to earth to do what Abraham couldn't do. Jesus came to do what Adam couldn't do. Jesus came to do what Nehemiah couldn't do, that anyone in the ancient Hebrew world, the things that they couldn't do, Jesus came to bless the world, all because thousands of years ago, God made this covenant promise to his people. Israel failed, but Yahweh was Hesed and Emet. Adam failed, but Yahweh was Hesed and Emet. You and I fail today, but Yahweh is Hesed and Emet for us today in the same way that he was for Abraham thousands of years ago. So Jesus took millennia of failure and broken promises and disobedience. He dragged all of that to the cross, and the next phase of the story takes a quantum leap forward as he breaks the curse of humanity, of sin, through the resurrection as the ultimate expression of God's said and his amet that he has for us. Because of Yahweh's love and his faithfulness, we can look forward to one day a world being set free from entropy of death. But it makes us ask the question, well, what is hope? Uh, The ancient Hebrews were left hoping and waiting and wanting this covenant promise to be fulfilled in their lifetime. But what is hope for us today? Uh, Often you'll hear people say, I hope that I find a a parking spot at the mall, or I hope that this person responds to my text, or I hope that I get a big tax return this year. Uh, That's wishful thinking. That is not hope as the, the authors of Scripture understood. For the New Testament writers, hope was the absolute expectation of the coming good based on the character of God. This is why Paul writes in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, He remains emet. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For you or for me, you're left with this question of, well, how is God faithful in the fact that my dad died at a young age, and so I grew up without a father? How is God faithful if I'm going through a nasty divorce? How is God faithful if I'm out of a job? How is God faithful if I have medical bills that have stacked up and they have ruined me financially? How is God faithful in that? Asking those questions is viewing the, the, the question through the lens of a false gospel. As I said with Abraham, that when God made this covenant with Abraham, he didn't promise him an easy or a carefree life. He didn't promise him that he would be healthy and that he would be wealthy and everything would go as he planned. What he promised is is to be there with him, to be present with him in the pain and also in the good. Don't believe in the false gospel that God has promised you something that he hasn't in his word. God has not promised us an easy path through life. Jesus himself said this in John 16, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. Jesus is not saying that you might have trouble. Jesus says you will have trouble, but take heart. What is hope? Take heart. 
have hope in the fact that Jesus, through his death and the resurrection, has overcome the world. And we can find our ultimate hope and peace in that. The gospel message is hope in hardship, in the good, in the bad, hope that God is pulling us forward in this story and that God's covenant promise remains with us today just as it was with Abraham, just as it was with Nehemiah. A couple of weeks ago, um, my family and I were in Colorado, and we were with my, my sister and her husband and their four boys, and then my younger sister and her husband and her, her son, and my parents were there as well. And uh, every night we would gather around this table in this condominium that my parents had rented, and it was this large table, and it was kind of a crazy scene. It was like that beginning of Home Alone. Remember when they're all in the kitchen and they're eating the pizza and everybody's crazy and it's just like super loud? It was like that every single night. And there was this moment where I was sitting at the end of the table, and I was looking around the room, and I looked at my mom, I looked at my dad and my sister and my nephews and my, brothers, my brother-in-law. And as I reflected on the text this week, like that was a picture for me, the best way that I can understand it in relationship of Hesed and Emet. Because that night as I sat at that table and I looked around, I said, man, we have gone through some stuff as a family. There's been a lot of good. There's seven grandsons running around that place. No granddaughters yet. Seven grandsons running around that. And it's, it's beautiful that God has showed his faithfulness uh, to my family in that. We've gone through a lot of ups. We've also gone through a lot of downs. There have been a lot of hardships and stories popped into my mind where um, one of the kids had done something really stupid, as we were prone to do, where we had rebelled against our parents, where we had broken the hearts of our parents. We had broken the hearts of one another from me with my sisters, my sisters with me. But there we sat around that table and our hesed, our met, our love and our faithfulness for one another was unshaken. That I would do anything for those people around that table. And as beautiful and as powerful as that moment was, what I realized is that it's only a glimpse of the love and the faithfulness that God has for us as his created children, his sons and his daughters that he loves so much that in order to fulfill his covenant that he would send his son to the cross, to endure the punishment for the sin that we had deserved because God is said, God is steadfast love, but God is also we met, that God is faithful through the good and the bad, through the thick and the thin, the ups and the downs. So may you believe that today. Let's pray. God, today we come before you. God, we encounter the text with the understanding that there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we have done that warrants your love. God, we are wicked at times, and our hearts rebel against you. God, we know that you desire the best for us. God, that you promise to be present with us in hardships and in the good times. But God, often we stray away. But Father, this morning we center our hearts and our minds and our, our, our lives around the truth that you are said and met, that you love us even when we don't deserve it. God, that you love us even in the fact that there's nothing that we can do to repay that love. God, that you love us even in our disobedience. God, but that you are faithful as well, that you are met. God, that when we think 
that because of our sin or we think that because of our circumstance, the brokenness that we experience in our life, that God, maybe you're not faithful. Just as, just as Abraham wondered in Genesis 15, that God, have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned your covenant promise with us that God draw our eyes to the fact that you are present with us, that you are walking alongside us, that God, just as you promised Abraham, that this covenant that you have promised for us has nothing to do with us or what we can do, but God, it's because of your love and your faithfulness. God, let us worship you now with that understanding. In your name we pray, amen.